picking up where we left off. A Holling Center podcast. Hosted by Michael Carroll. Welcome to Picking Up Where We Left Off. I'm Michael Carroll, Executive Director for the Holling Center for International Dialogue. The Holling Center has held over 50 dialogue conferences on topics in international relations, such as human security, responsible business, the environment, regional policy, and higher education. During those dialogues, we heard fascinating discussions with renowned experts in multiple fields and from many countries. Often following these dialogues, we ponder the question, what's next? To answer that, we decided to bring back some of the experts that continue the discussions and further new ideas. Every two weeks, we'll cover a different topic with two of our past participants. The United Nations report World Urbanization Prospects in 2018 describes a megacity as a city of 10 million or more inhabitants. By that definition, the number of megacities will increase globally from 10 in 1990 to an estimated 43 in 2030, hosting nearly 9% of the world's population. Spanning five continents, megacities present numerous economic, demographic, and environmental challenges and opportunities that may differ in scope, but are shared in essence across the board. As such, they present a timely topic for international dialogue and cross-cultural collaboration. The definition of a megacity is far more amorphous than simple criteria of population, density, or geographic size. Megacities arose as major cultural, economic, and infrastructural phenomena with far-reaching influence and impact on their countries and the world at large. Better assessment of the challenges and opportunities created by megacities requires a greater theoretical analysis and a broadened, inclusive definition. In July 2019, the Holling Center hosted a dialogue conference looking at the promise and the challenges of the world's megacities. One subtopic of that dialogue was a discussion about the concept of open data and how it could be better utilized to create better livelihoods in urban environments. Maintaining a healthy, vibrant megacity depends on the healthy flow of people, ideas, and resources. Transparency between governments and citizens can create opportunity from the city center to the city's periphery. However, impediments to that flow can create infrastructural decay, cascading corruption, social stress, and economic inequalities. Picking up where we left off on megacities, we have two guests today from two of the megacities that were represented in the dialogue, one joining us from New York City and the other from Istanbul. Alex Armlovich is a senior research associate at New York Citizens Budget Commission. His research focuses on transportation, infrastructure, and urban public policy. Prior to CBC, he worked as a Taubman Summer Fellow in Capital Planning at the Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority and as a state and local policy fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Alex holds a BA in Economics and Political Science from the University of Rochester and a Master in Public Policy from the Harvard Kennedy School. Elvan Erginli is a project coordinator at the Turkish Economic and Social Studies Foundation. She received a PhD in Urban Planning from Istanbul Technical University with a dissertation entitled Migrants, Local and Non-Local Social Networks. She focuses on urban inequality, efficient provision of urban services, database decision-making, housing, and public transportation. So looking back at our megacities conference and report, one of the key points that was raised is that megacities require good governance of land use, health, housing, and transportation. 
Better transparency between governments and citizens is needed, and new technological applications can help improve in that communication. So a way that transparent information flow can happen is through data access and data-driven policies. And speaking on both your contexts in New York and in Istanbul, what challenges do you see in terms of data-driven urban policymaking? And I'd like to start in this instance with New York and uh, Alex uh, to get his thoughts, and then we'll, then we'll shift it over to Istanbul and get uh, Elvin's thoughts. Actual governance varies uh, not only in the United States, but definitely globally across megacities of the extent to which um, cities are governed um, regionally or locally, and then how uh, transport is managed, uh, whether it's an independent agency or part of, you know, part of the actual government itself. And uh, in New York, we have a relatively fragmented uh, uh, system of, of governance where the state um, has a lot of control over transportation uh, in, in terms of mass transit in New York City is basically managed by, uh, by state government through the Metropolitan Transportation Authority. And um, uh, so there's um, kind of many overlapping areas of responsibility. Uh, and then uh, the, act, the city itself only controls the core. The tri-state area that the entire kind of metropolitan megacity that really New York, greater New York is, um, you know, is covered by multiple states and many, many, many municipalities. Um, so, you know, there's lots of fragmentation there. But if we were to zoom in in New York City um, and look at, uh, at the MTA, for example, at the Transit Authority, um, they are moving forward on, um, they're making progress on, uh, on basically making, making data available to the public. Uh, this has been um, sometimes adversarial. Uh, um, uh, you know, the, it's kind of the, the, the governor uh, passed, you know, had an executive order kind of mandating uh, open data from the MTA. And, um, and that resulted in like uh, a subway performance dashboard, better, um, you know, bus uh, and customer journey time performance metrics being published. But um, uh, eventually, uh, the state legislature decided that uh, a full open, a formal open data law, not just the executive order was necessary to continue to improve um, access there. But um, then, you know, there's another level of, uh, of, you know, the theory of what open data can do. So, um, uh, I know uh, it's now it's you know pre-COVID, but um, Harvard Kennedy School hosted a, you know a, a conference on open data, saying you know uh, has open data failed? Um, you know if um, if uh, there's not a a vast uh, kind of army of citizen scientists out there uh, writing their own code, querying APIs, um, but ultimately um, think tanks and journalists are kind of the intermediaries um, for. For this data, so like it's it's so valuable. Um, um, not that there's going to be, uh, you know, not everyone's mom is going to learn to code and start using open data and you know, you know, make you know, building things out in Python. Um, but uh, it's still so critical because the people who bring that uh, uh, that information to the public, you know, uh, that are not part of government itself, are this really important. You know, civil society needs that open data to function. So um, yeah, I would say. Things are moving forward on transportation, but uh, there's there's still a lot more to go. I think we have uh, different kind of challenges than uh, the New York City has. Uh, first of all, uh, I think our first challenge is the availability of data first. Uh, and the second, if it's available, uh, the accessibility of data is a uh, can be a big issue. Uh, if I start with availability of data, 
uh, you know, uh, to make accurate, uh, efficient and measurable policies for transportation, housing or health or any kind of urban policy, uh, you first need uh, qualified data. By qualified, I mean uh, high resolution and also systematic uh, high resolution uh, in terms of data categories and also in terms of geographical units, uh, which is very important in our context in Turkey or in Istanbul. Uh, part of the statistical data is produced by the Turkish Statistical uh, Institute uh, at neighborhood level, but it's very limited. Uh, some government offices, some local governments and other uh, local uh, authorities also produce uh, spatial data or their services or some uh, surveys, but uh, they have uh, problems in standardized and uh, up-to-date uh, databases. And the second challenge, as I said, is the uh, accessibility of data. Even uh, the data exists because, uh, you know, um, databases are not always accessible on the website, websites of the, uh, the institutions or uh, generally direct or official application uh, is required and citizens don't know how to do it. Even the staff at municipalities or uh, people at working at civil society organizations don't know how to obtain data from uh, other institutions. Um, so, yeah, you said better transparency between governments and citizens is needed. Uh, I totally agree for transparency, accountability, efficiency and uh, participation, monitoring everything. Uh, and I think data-based policy making is not something new, but what is new here is the uh, amount of data and uh, volume and diversity of uh, data. So uh, you ha we have a real-time big data uh, or uh, data getting from social media or crowdsourcing. Uh, but I think uh, the New York City uh, has a very improved open, uh, open data platform and they also have very improved uh, urban dashboard uh, for the citizens uh, who cannot understand or write codes or uh, can make analysis from uh, the raw data. Uh, but I think we are missing uh, a big opportunity uh, of the so-called data revolution here in Istanbul. We have some uh, good developments like Istanbul Metropolitan Municipality uh, launched their open data uh, platform two years ago, but uh, still um, most of the data uh, from central government, especially, uh, is not uh, accessible, I can say. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, I don't know if you run into this uh, in, in Istanbul as well, but here, a lot of our open data users and our uh, freedom of information laws or acts, so FOIA or FOIL, they're often used by other government agencies. Um, which it sounds crazy. If I'm in the government, why am I using the Freedom of Information Act to get to get uh, you know to get info from another government? But it's because these a lot of large agencies don't have another formal data sharing process, and so open data and and freedom of information um, kind of machinery is how you you know that's a lot of times the only workflow that that is functional if you want to get things from one silo to another. And so like that's one of the you know great things about um, you know. Oh, you know, open data has a lot less kind of, um, you know, friction and overhead than filing a formal Freedom of Information Act request. Yeah, in Turkey, it's also a big issue. Uh, I mean, the data uh, exchange between different uh, institutions, uh, especially if they are from um, 
opposite political parties, it can be a big issue in Turkey uh, between uh, local governments and also uh, and uh, between local governments and uh, local offices of the central government, uh, which makes uh, uh, local governments' job very difficult for uh, data-based decision making because they. Uh, have to uh, collect their uh, data about their district or their city by themselves with uh, some surveys. But this is not their job. Uh, this is the um, this is the job of the Turkish Statistical Institute or uh, the other uh, ministries, central government organs. I mean, hmm. so that's also a big issue in Turkey. This data exchange thing between institutions, right? I would say I, I, my, our number one threat in the short term is that the United States census at the federal level is about to destroy its local data. Um, mm-hmm. Basically, there's a, this, que- this concern that basically uh, modern machine learning is powerful enough to unite public census data at a local area with private, uh, detailed private data sets that would allow um, a sophisticated user um, to... Um, uh, um, de-anonymize um, census mm-hmm. responses. So they're starting to add um, large amounts of statistical noise to uh, small area data. And so there's this trade-off between privacy and usefulness. But if, if, you're, if you're a small city in the United States and you're relying on, you know, the United States has one of the best federal, you know, data, uh, like the census is incredible, you know, and then there's, we, you know, we, ha- we have the Bureau of Economic Analysis, we have the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and then we have the U.S. Census, all three together. I mean, it's truly right. It's arguably, you know, arguably world class, but we're about to, I mean, cities are in for a world of hurt if we're no longer, if our federal data providers are no longer usable at the local level. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think, yeah, there's a, it's a big, um, it's not settled yet of what's going to happen, um, but uh, yeah, people are, People in the kind of like state and local research policy community are are raising it as an issue, um, but I, I, yeah, it's it's a difficult trade off there: privacy versus usefulness of data at the local level. Yeah, but as I know, you have a very good uh, open data ecosystem, especially in New York. Uh, how about the civil society participation in I don't know deciding which data to collect or do they gather for some kind of, I don't know, uh, exchange of ideas? It's um, New York City proper has a, a, an extremely active civil society that is, you know, um, able to, like, for example, this the MTA's new open data law that just passed um, mm. uh, this year. And so, you know, they're going to be implementing it over the next 18 months. That is the result of civil society. You know, that's like the, the so-called good government groups all downstate, you know, we work together to get that law passed. Um, I think... I think upstate New York has had, um, you know, uh, the same, like, kind of a lot of the same um, uh, uh, economic and demographic uh, decline that happened with deindustrialization upstate um, has, you know, civil society is relatively less active there in terms of like, um, you know, like Buffalo's transportation authority doesn't really have any open you know, open data whatsoever. Um, and so, you know, the, any, so New York city proper. Yeah. Like all the, all the NGOs are on it. Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse, Albany. It's, it's yeah, the, it's different, unfortunately. Well, one, if I may interject one question, um, 
that I think both of you have alluded to slightly is this question of excess data, the noise, the, the idea that there's so much data out there that it um, becomes harder to actually be able to suss out useful information because there's so much of it out there. One of, the, one of the questions I'm really interested in listening to the two of you talk is um, when you have that much data, there is a tendency, especially in political circles, to start cherry picking the data that you like, to start manipulating the presentation of that data. And I was curious as to how, it, you know, going back on this question of civil society, is there a role for civil society actors to play in making sure that the data that's being presented or the picture that's being presented to the general public uh, when data-driven decisions are being made is, is accurate. Um, because I can imagine as the signal world gets noisier and noisier and noisier, um, that that's going to be increasingly harder to do, uh, particularly in this era of misinformation. So I'd be curious to hear your perspectives from both, both cities. Um, again, kind of echoing the civil society question. I think uh, we are still um, in that using traditional data phase because uh, in Turkey, even the statistical, uh, Turkey statistical institutes uh, data is not reliable. And uh, civil society organizations in Turkey, uh, they don't use data uh, in general. Uh, maybe some uh, think tanks and some NGOs uh, on some issues, they use data in their research or analysis. Uh, but it's not uh, very common in Turkey to uh, NGOs to use uh, data uh, in any kind of uh, advocacy. We are still using traditional data, not the data from uh, social media or uh, crowd uh, sources. Uh, so I don't think that uh, we have that problem of uh, data noise uh, in Turkey because uh, even the local governments uh, started to use uh, data in their strategic plans or in their decision-making processes. It, this is something very new uh, in Turkey, I can say. In those, in those instances where it's still new, but maybe being used, can, is there an example you can cite of something that has been working well uh, when, it, when it comes to having some open source data, but also that leading to uh, uh, important policy decisions or, or important um, you know, changes on, on the local level? Uh, yeah, there was a, a campaign uh, from, uh, from the United Nations Women two or three years ago. Uh, so women could uh, pin uh, their locations and they could report some kind of uh, problems they have about security or any kind of problems. Uh, so they could uh, pin their locations and uh, report the, uh, their problems. And some municipalities used uh, that data uh, for, you know, uh, lightening the uh, bus stops or some uh, parks, gardens, etc. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's, I, um, the Bloomberg administration in New York City, you know, was very successful in implementing an early 311 system for, you know, citizens to directly interact with um, mm -hmm. municipal government to solve, you know, hyper-local problems. And, you know, they're, they're, there are strong upsides and potential downsides of um, like if it's pothole repair, generally you want the, your Department of Transportation to be doing asset driven management that is ahead of, you know, is keeping assets in a state of good repair and is ahead of the game rather than just being complete driven um, insofar as um, uh, the, the differences in um, that kind of proactive engagement kind of track with other differences in power in society. And so sometimes complaint driven 
um, stuff, complaint or yeah, complaint driven services improvements, um, you know, can result in unintended inequities, you know, after the fact. Um, so like it's, but on the other hand though, that, that feeling for this, for a citizen, like I remember I called about a, uh, a, uh, a clogged catch basin that was blocking sidewalks. You know, it was like, you know, a, a large subway stop that, you know, you couldn't get to the entrance because it was flooded. Um, and the, uh, seeing, you know, seeing, uh, you know, a, a DEP truck show up and dredge it within 12 hours. I was like, wow, I felt really licit. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, this vast, this vast machinery, you know, listen to my phone call. So like there's, you know, there's something powerful about that too. So yeah, I, I, as long as a city is like aggressively aware of the potential downfalls of complaint driven services, um, uh, you know, it's, it's really been a, a, you know, a great thing. And then you can use that to do other data analysis. You know, all the records of 311 calls are public, open data, and you can go, you know, track changes in quality of life issues over time in different neighborhoods. Perhaps, Let's say that you have a meeting with your local mayor. What would you tell them should be the first steps in toward a more open data, uh, data-driven policy for their city? What would you say to your mayor, this is what we need to do right now to start building that pathway towards uh, data being more useful um, for civil means? It's, it's okay if the primary user base of, of open data is um, you know, intergovernmental uh, uh, data sharing, NGOs, and journalists, um, and not to panic if you don't have huge user counts on your on your open data panels. Um, you know, I think there's an ideal of the citizen scientist, but we also have to be realistic that you know people are are living their everyday lives. They have you know families and work, and um, um, and kind of like full permanent political mobilization um, is you know something that is. Uh, you know, I, I think I think people mobilize when um, something is, you know, uh, uh, you know, something is basically in an extreme scenario. Like if something's extremely wrong, people will mobilize. But um, that a lot of times people expect and trust government to, you know, do its to do its job, and that uh, kind of the so-called fourth estate, you know, is there as the watchdog if something goes wrong. Um, and so I, I think that that's, you know. Um, uh, you know, continue to have those, um, you know, those users in mind, accommodate citizen scientists who are interested, but also, yeah, not to panic if, if there's not kind of a mass movement um, uh, either. Yeah, uh, I think right now, uh, one of the biggest issues in Istanbul, and I think it's the biggest issue in Istanbul, is a traffic jam. So, uh, and in uh, Istanbul's open data platform, uh, you don't have much um, data on transportation. Uh, so, yeah, that would be nice to uh, have some kind of, you know, uh, we have these public trans transportation cards. Uh, every citizen uh, in Istanbul uh, has it. Uh, so maybe they could uh, open, make that uh, data uh, open and uh, people can participate in solving this uh, traffic uh, jam problem. And also they can uh, uh, organize some uh, meetings on this uh, open data ecosystem uh, so we can uh, improve this ecosystem together with the uh, municipality uh, and other NGOs on uh, data issues. Thank you to, for, to you both for uh, answering, granted, a hypothetical question, but one I think both highlighted the importance of how this can really be a way for for civic engagement with governments. And then hopefully 
you know, that there will be progress on these fronts. And while it may not get all the clicks or likes that we usually typically use as metrics uh, for this type of engagement, um, even if it's a, something as simple as a pothole or as simple as having a bus run on time, it can really be a life-changing uh, thing for, for many people and make life a little bit easier in our municipalities. So I want to thank both of you for uh, speaking with us today and um, for continuing where we left off on uh, challenges in megacities and open data. Thanks for inviting. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure yeah. to see you guys. The Holling Center for International Dialogue is a nonprofit, non-governmental organization dedicated to fostering dialogue between the United States and countries with predominantly Muslim populations around the world. In pursuit of this mission, the Holling Center convenes dialogue conferences that generate new thinking on important international issues and deepen channels of communication across opinion leaders and experts. To learn more, go to hollingcenter.org.